Did you look at the notes here, Mark? Yeah. What's this thing about the Red Sox? What is this all about? Okay. Well, let's 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 roll into this then. Okay. <laughs> so this is uh, episode one. Oh, it's one sixty already. Wow. Yeah. So hey, everybody! Welcome to episode one sixty of the More Than Just Co podcast. I'm Tim Mitchell, and I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? We're also joined by Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. Okay, so we have a couple of follow-up items. One of them, uh, one of the, I don't know if it made it into the after show or, or or if we put it into the new podcast called Spotcast. Um, but Jaime and Mark were talking about the Red Sox last week, and it just so happened that the, turned out there was an Apple story on Nine to Five Max and a few other places that the Red Sox were caught stealing signals during games using Apple Watch uh, on the the coaches, the base coaches. So you guys didn't look at this note as one yet? Well, you know, I'm looking at the quote in in their uh, in the article from the manager and general manager of the Red Sox saying they're not aware of it. So I'm I'm, sti- oh, really? I'm sticking with that. <laughs> Until there's more proof, didn't happen. <laughs> well, all right. Yeah, according to the stories that have been going around. Oh, and look at the picture of Tim Cooks there with the with the mascots. But um, that somehow they were using, I guess, their Apple Watches to communicate to, um, I don't know, the, the pitching staff or whatever, or, or the, I guess the infielders that like, signals were being thrown. But I thought when you're, oh, I guess if you're if you're a base coach, you're you're coaching the guys who are running the bases. Yeah, right? yeah. So usually stealing signs is somebody. It's usually a base runner. Uh, but it could be a coach because it's somebody out in the field who can look at the catcher, see the signs, and then see what pitch the pitch the pitcher throws. So then they know what the sign means, and then they can go and tell the batter uh, what's coming up. You know, they can see the sign and then you know quickly signal the batter uh, that the, oh, this is going to be a fastball, or oh, this is going to be a curveball, and so the batter knows what's coming. Right. And so, oh, so I was going to say, like, I guess the, st- the, the clearly the the signals aren't standard stuff, but they they mix them up and but they quickly do a quick calculation based on the type of pitch it is, right? Exactly. Well, yeah. So the pitcher and the catcher change their signs all the time to try to keep it secret because you know people people do this kind of stuff all the time. Yeah, but aren't there like a handful of different types of pitches, basically? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the signs for so so you know usually the catcher will you know will give like you know one finger is a fastball, two fingers is a curveball, or whatever. But but if they use the same signs all the time. Then and everyone would know, right? So, so, right, so right. the pitcher and the catcher before the beginning, the beginning of the inning, or or you know when they go out to the mound, they just decide what the signs are going to be, and they scramble them up so that so that at any given time nobody can figure out what the signs are. Right, right. Well, according to the article, of what I read about it was that um, if they're stealing the signal or stealing the signs and figuring out what the what the pitches are and what the signals are, that's fine. But it's when they start using electronic instruments to do that, like you know, in the case of the Apple Watches or whatever. And Jaime's posted an interesting article here. Um, in the Slack chat um, about how they, they stole the psych signals. Is that right, Jaime? Yeah, it's got an interesting step-by-step diagram as to how exactly it works. But but note that the article was in the New York Times talking about a game against the Yankees. So, oh, I see. So. Right. <laughs> yes, full, full disclosure, that is, in fact, true. <laughs> So you Mark's know, uh, pulling for the home team there. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they maybe they did it, but you know, I'm sticking with my guys. Okay, we'll let this one slide then. Yeah. All, right, all right. So the next follow up is that actually um, I didn't realize this until I started typing it out in the show notes. Kind of a clickbaity title, but it's called Thirteen, and it's a blog post by our buddy Joe Chaplinsky um, of Release Notes Fame, and sometimes on he's been been with us on uh, more than just Code or live podcasts. But it's a uh, uh, write up that he's done on. On his uh, latest acquisition, which is a 13-inch MacBook Pro, 20, I think he had a, he's had 13-inch Pros. I'm a 13-inch fan too. Like I like the size format. I prefer the Airs myself. Um, but he went from a 2014 13-inch Pro MacBook Pro that he didn't like to a Mac, a, a MacBook, like a 12-inch MacBook or 11-inch MacBook. Yeah, from oh, 11-inch Air he had at one point. Anyway, he talks about some of the advantages of the new, the new, the new MacBook. You know, with the t- with the size, the weight, um, as well as the the you know the lack of ports because it's only got the two USB ports on the side. And he makes uh, an interesting point here, which I wasn't aware of, but I kind of was aware of it, but the only only name in that, that the Thunderbolt 3 port is not necessarily a USB port. Like they're not interchangeable. It's a, using the style of connector, that's a USB-C port, but it's actually a Thunderbolt 3 port. Um, So he compares some of the performance and battery life and that kind of stuff. And of course he says the only time it's really a a pig on any of these things is when he's running Xcode because I guess it uses 
uses a lot of processing power and a lot of goes through a lot of juice to run that. He's not super pleased about the fact that the 13-inch MacBook Pros don't have real um, Retina displays. They have sort of a, a limited um, amount of resolution, I guess, a number of pixels on the screen kind of thing. And he talks about Touch Bar. He's I think he's a fan of the Touch Bar, if I read this correctly. And um, you know, uh, he likes how it fits into some apps and not others and that kind of thing. So, and I have to say that I I, I use some of the some of the Touch Bars on my 15-inch at work, but um, I, I don't live and die by it. And mind you, I'm not using apps. I guess that are that are fully Touch Bar compliant. Yeah, and and the keyboard. I mean, I like the keyboard. He got into the, he got used to the keyboard when he had the 12-inch MacBook. Uh, but the keys are much you know they're, they're smaller, they're lower profile, they don't move very far, uh, but they're very comfortable to use, and you get used to it real quick. And they're they're a bit clacky a bit. I, I find with uh, some of the people around me who have also got 15-inch uh, uh, MacBook Pros, I hear them t- you know clicking away on their keyboards. I'm not sure what what that is, but um, yeah. And then he talks about this uh, this um, uh, USB hub that he bought. So and he uses a, an interesting app which I knew didn't know about called Jettison. Which um, if you use a laptop and you plug in drives, one of the biggest problems about you know unplugging the the Mac and running is that you have to you need to remember to un uh, disk mount unmount the disks right. And so the apps like Jettison and a few other ones will do that for you as soon as you put the Mac to sleep will automatically eject your disks and your USB drives and so you can run. It's actually pretty interesting because I've been thinking about, I'm kind of due for a new home computer. And uh, so currently I use a 15-inch MacBook, but with a external display, a big external display. And so I, I kind of never use the laptop ness of, of the laptop, except when I'm traveling, which isn't that often these days. So I was thinking for my next one, I might actually go down to a 13. Uh, since, I, you know, since I'm connected to the display anyway, it, it didn't seem like uh, it would matter too much. So, so this is a pretty good article that uh, gives me something to think about uh, it, it looks like i may actually be able to do that yeah i mean it's a good it's a good summary it's kind of like um you know when i'm when i'm in the market to buy a, a new mac i kind of sort of go through the same sort of things um, i tend to like i said I gra- i'm gravitate towards the 13 inch size i gravitate gravitate towards the macbook air like when i bought my macbook air i maxed out all the things i got more storage i got you know i put the faster i7 uh, processor in it and that kind of stuff and, and it's done me well i mean like, i'm still using it. i'm still very happy with it and i have carol's 11 inch when I travel that I take with me. But um, yeah, I mean, if I go back to a MacBook Pro, if I had my choice, I would go to a 13 probably. Although I do appreciate the fact that, you know, the uh, the um, uh, 15-inch MacBook Pro that I have has four USB ports on it. So. Yeah. And, I, and, you know, if you see me at the office, you'll see me going from meeting to meeting. I have like four dongles hanging out of it as I'm walking around the building. I've got my Ethernet and I've got my HDMI dongle and I've got my, you know, VGA dongle because our, mo- our desk monitors are VGA. Um, so... Yeah. yeah, but it, yeah, this is this is a it's a good uh, good read if you're if you're in the market for a MacBook and you're sort of you know considering it sitting on the fence or whatever. Um, have a look at this article by Joe. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was a good article, and maybe we should talk a little bit about what qualifies as a dongle. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> oh, you know, um, zero dongles. Okay. Fair point. Um, the, I, the image that I see here has no dongles whatsoever. Do we consider the dock, the, uh, the hub here? Do we consider that a dongle? No, I don't think so because that's sort of, to me, that's, um, a desktop accessory that would stay connected. That's like connecting to the, I don't take my monitor with me when I go. I think Mark, I have the, the old display port, um, 24 inch monitor. I think it was the Apple and Mark, you have a Thunderbolt one, right? I do have a Thunderbolt. Yeah, yeah the, but you have a 27 inch, I think, right? I think it's a, I remember correctly. Yeah, I think it's 27 inch. Yep. Yeah. So, um, and you know, it's funny, it's a funny thing to say this lately. It's been really good, rock solid for me for years. I mean, the ports do take some abuse because I'm constantly unplugging them, even when I, you know, half half the time I'll sit on the couch and I'll unplug and just use the laptop by itself. But it's been pretty good. Like in turn, and I've got a, you know, I have a Magic Trackpad 2, whatever this thing is called, you know, the, the wireless one that's got the battery built in. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, I would leave that dock connected to my desk. I mean, I've got a couple of USB hubs behind my, my monitor here because I've got, you know, the microphone and drives and I've got a scanner hooked up and, you know, various and sundry. So, um, yeah, I would I would consider that not a dongle. You'd leave it on the desk. Whereas, you know, the dongles I use at the office are because uh, because our boardrooms have a, a HDMI monitors in them. So we plug in through HDMI to share our screen on if we're doing a presentation or, or if we're leading the meeting or whatever. And then, like I said, our desk, desk monitors are um, VGA 
VGA. So I'm constantly having to plug in dongles and unplug. And I, th- I don't know if I mentioned on the show before, but I'm having, I've been having trouble with one of the ports already. Like after like maybe six months of unplugging and plugging that I've gotten to the point where I just put my computer away with the dongles hanging out because I just don't want to wear the ports out. Right. So what do you think? I mean, is it a dongle or not a dongle? It's probably I mean, not a dongle and I didn't think it was, but it fulfills a lot of the same needs of a dongle, right? In that, um, like it's really very inconvenient to move around and go somewhere else and have these uh, bits connected to it. Um, although yeah. to be fair, I guess that would have been true if you wanted to have one, two, three, four. It's hard to tell five or six ports, I think, at the back. It's kind of hard to tell from the shadows and in, in the image. Um, yeah, I think uh, this is one yeah. from uh, OWC. It's got, uh, I think it's got like an Ethernet and um, it's got the USB-Cs. It's got a couple of USB-A um, ports. Like, I, think they're, they're, I think they're USB-3 speeds. And then, uh, mind you, I think he talks about that in the article. Um, yeah, and then I think he's probably got a, it probably has an HDMI out to a display. It's a lot bigger than than I thought. Like, uh, you know, you see, you, see, you see a picture on a website, you know how big it is. It's almost as wide as the laptop is where that little Kickstarter one that I bought that didn't quite work for me, um, just plugs into the side ports and it's much smaller um like it's portable like that it's like you know it's like it's smaller than a candy bar let's put it that way when it's when it's in a little carrying case right so that that i would consider a portable dongly kind of device right but but this one here no mm-hmm. i would be this connected to my desk so not a dongle so we need to write an app that uh will use um core ml and vision framework to tell whether something's a dongle or not a dongle right yeah <laughs> that actually would actually be a pretty easy thing to write because the the, <laughs> the well the the neural network to, to determine that would be pretty simple because there's not a lot of variation in size and shapes of dongles. Now you say that what what we talked we t- talked about the 360 uh, stump the experts thing. I brought a picture of three dongles. Yeah. Maybe I'll share the picture with you. But I brought a picture of three dongles and I asked the the challenge the audience to identify them. Yeah. And um, they two out of three they got right. You know and 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 I try kind of tricked them because one of the dongles isn't is not available for purchase. You can never you could I mean that I know of you could probably buy it through Apple part but you could, it was never sold as a retail item but mm. yeah so i had like a you know i think a, an H, a mini hdmi um dongle for the imac intel imacs and i had a, a mini vga for the uh, g4 imacs and then i had um and then i had a, a my my dongle cable which is a vga cable from a mac cube which looks like a dongle but again that might be not a dongle so i'll have to show you the picture so you know what i'm talking about yeah <laughs> but but if we define a dongle as just a, a short cable with two connectors on either side yeah. Then I think a neural network could figure that out pretty easily. But it would be an interesting mm. thing to try. Maybe maybe if we ever get around to doing the MTJC real time app, then yeah. that might yeah. be a fun one to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not a dongle. All right. Um, well, okay. it, so, it has it, it can tell two things. It can tell whether it's a dongle or whether it's not a dongle. Right. That's yeah, oh yeah. Okay. So that's, has, that's a reference more, to, to the show. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I, I think everybody gets it. You know, <laughs> okay. there yeah. was a lot of there was a lot of not a hot dog comments at the uh, at the three sixty. Oh, okay. Okay. So, All right. Cut that yeah. part out. So I, I think that's kind of worn out that one. All right, so that's no big deal. Um, but anyway, like the reason I mentioned it was clickbaity because there's a show on on Netflix called Thirteen, isn't there? Is that the big uh, show? But are you guys familiar with that one? I may, maybe no. Thirteen? Yes. Yeah. There's the show about uh, teenager committing suicide. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. 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 I think that's yeah. That 13, would be Thirteen right? Reasons Why. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Thirteen Reasons. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. okay. Close enough. All right. And then the last uh, item of follow-up just came up today, I think, was posted. Uh, it's an interesting story. It's more of a read about Canadian um, spies. We've talked about this before where, you know, um, and you can put your tinfoil hat on if you want to get into the conspiracy of it all, but um, we have a, a Canadian um, – well, we have CSIS, which is like uh, – that's kind of like um, – uh, it's a Canadian – it's like the equivalent of the FBI or CIA, I guess. But there's also this Canadian Electronic Spy Service, or CSE that um, keeps track of, you know, exploits and things like that, vulnerabilities out there in tools and software and stuff like that. And so the article talks about the fact that they may be, they may know about things that they don't necessarily reveal to the public because while they have, while it's not, uh, the the exploit's unknown to the general public, they can use it to keep an eye on the evildoers, right? And apparently the American equivalent of this does, does a similar thing. And so I guess the CIA in this case. And so 
so, you know, WikiLeaks exposed that the, the zero day vulnerability, which I still don't remember what the hell that is, but, um, is something that's being, that's, they, some, some parts of that they know about, but, and they haven't necessarily revealed them to people. I think, you know, it's also to protect people, but this last, um, WannaCry virus that went around, uh, apparently was, uh, code that was stolen from the NSA. So, um, it wasn't that, you know, the, it, again, so the NSA was using this or, or had it or had it quarantined or whatever, and somebody came in and, and grabbed it and turned it into, let it, released it on the wild. Yeah, the stockpiling thing is a, a huge issue. And we definitely ran into that with the CIA stuff that was released and it sort of underscored the, the other side of stockpiling those, those exploits. Like ostensibly they're being stockpiled so they can be used, you know, to secure the nation for national security purposes. And yet um, it's entirely possible that you can undermine national security, that sort of thing, if it, you're not careful in making sure that it doesn't get out anywhere. Right. In, right. in fact, that happened recently, I think. Wasn't the, wasn't the uh, ransomware scare or business that happened a couple months ago? Yeah, the WannaCry. That was something that was stolen from the NSAs? Maybe yeah NSA yeah this was NSA here yeah oh does it say yeah. that in the article yeah yeah I mentioned her a few minutes ago but and this lady Brenda McPhail she's a privacy director for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Um, she has an interesting quote at the end of the article where she says, you know, we think of our national security agencies as people whose jobs is to keep us safe. And I think it's problematic when these people whose job it is to keep us safe are able to make decisions to deliberately reduce our safety online to their own advantage. And that's, I think that's the idea behind stockpiling and using this stuff on your own, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of links linked to other articles in this uh, this piece. So if you're interested in this kind of stuff, I mean, have a look at it and you can read up on uh, other stories. These, this is from the cbc.ca website. Um, and it was just posted today. So at least I think it's interesting. All right. Um, so I don't know what you guys were doing this afternoon, but um, I, for for reasons, let's say, I was in and out of the Apple developer site all day today, uh, checking on some stuff. And around, I don't know, I want to say 2, 3, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern Standard Time, or Eastern Daylight Time, I think it is, um, the Apple site went uh, into like a maintenance mode saying, we'll be back soon kind of thing. And I, yep. but, you know, I just thought, oh, there's going to be some cool product coming out and can't wait to see what that is, or maybe they're getting ready for the twelfth or something. And then, as I was walking home, I was reading on uh, an article on Mac Rumors that, in fact, uh, they think that, or at least Mac Rumors and the report and Nine to Five and a few other places are reporting that the um, Apple website may have been hacked because some people were saying that their um, their accounts had been changed or altered in the developer site, um, changing their uh, email addresses to Russian email addresses instead mm. of uh, their own. So, yeah, so it was um, interesting. Thing. I mean, like, you know, kudos to Apple for reacting quickly, I guess, and we'll never know <laughs> um, if they've, uh, they maybe they'll, make, hopefully they'll make a statement, right? But uh, it was kind of an interesting thing. And all of a sudden it just sort of showed up that uh, it kind of, um, I saw some people on Twitter and stuff like that talking about it. Um, and then, you know, uh, I think around seven or eight o'clock, it came back online. So um, I went and checked my accounts and made sure my, I mean, they must have restored for backup or something, or maybe they're using crash plan. That's a shot. But um, yeah, I know, yeah. I noticed that it was down as well. I haven't gone back and checked yet. I probably need to do that. Uh, I know that iTunes Connect seems okay. It doesn't seem to be affected. Right. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just like, you know, um, yeah, nothing's sacred, right? Yeah. And apparently in this article I'm reading here on, on uh, Mac Rumors, uh, 2013 Apple's developer center was breached by hackers. Um, it was taken offline for several days while they worked on the fix. I don't remember that. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. No. no. Hmm. Yeah, I do kind of remember that happening. And it, it was, yeah, it was off for, for several days. And it was so weird kind of wondering when exactly that was going to come back. Right. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Hmm. But yeah, so interesting story. Um, kind of made the rounds uh, this evening. A little bit of excitement around dinner time. So, <laughs> or in the afternoon for you guys. I guess. Yeah, it was for me. Yeah, scary stuff. I mean, I, I do kind of wonder what it is. Um, so way back in 2013, there was something kind of similar that happened in terms of people seeing weird stuff. It was a different context. It was when Apple was doing the WWDC pre-announcement of when tickets were going to become available. They were like, oh, by the way, um, they'll be available this Monday at like 2 p.m. or whatever it was, right? And the swarm of people all going in at the same time trying to 
login and everything just brought everything to its knees. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember having trouble logging in. And when I finally did log in, it showed my team name as something like Christopher Philbin or Chris Philbin, something <laughs> similar. And it was it was freaky. I was like, what the hell? That doesn't seem right. Like, what's going on? And so obviously, I'm not going to, you know, purchase this thing as that person. So I, I log out. And by the time I log back in again, I was like, oh, sorry, all tickets have been sold. It was yeah, yeah. 30 right, seconds right. worth of time. Yeah, that was 2013. Off. That was because uh, I don't remember. I think I've told this story before, but, you know, it was like one o'clock in the afternoon for us. And, and uh, me and one of my clients were sitting at my kitchen table and we both logged in. Yeah, we both had tickets in our um, shopping baskets. And then we had already logged into the store. So we thought, okay, we're, we're already, we already got that step out of the way. And then Apple basically wants you to verify again. So we had to verify that we wanted to do this. And like you said, there were so many people hitting the server at the same time that uh, the, the server kind of bounced. It kind of went, your password, your, your, you know, your username and password is incorrect. And I went, I do this. I log into this thing all the, I mean, I wasn't using one password at the time. I don't believe I was. But, and then so I tried again and uh, got back in again. And, sh- and I saw my ticket again in, in the in the shopping basket. And then when so I went, the second time I went to make the purchase, it bounced me back out and said, oh, sorry, all the tickets are sold. And again, this is another example, of reason why I sort of say it's kudos to Apple for reacting quickly, because I was despondent. I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to go to WWDC. And then what am I going to do? And I remember I went, you know, I went to a couple of calls downtown and I was walking home. And as I was walking home, I got a call on my, my iPhone from California. And I never answer calls I don't recognize, especially when they're out of the country. And it just happened to be Apple calling me up and saying, hey, you know, we noticed you were trying to buy a ticket today. Do you just don't want to buy the ticket? And so clearly the, you know, the shopping cart queue had gotten filled up, but somehow their their software, their server software, or whatever purchasing system they were using bounced, you know what I mean? Like, um, and they lost track of the people who were trying to actually make the purchases, you know? Um, but yeah, they had a list of, and so they were calling around the world um, and trying to catch up with all these people who had bought tickets. And in fact, my customer got called, they got a call a few hours after I did saying, you know, we saw that you were trying to buy a ticket. And so they pulled the trigger on their ticket as well. So, you know, what Apple did was they sent me an email and then I was able to buy the ticket because the, the it, it was connect, it was connected to the purchase, I guess, in the shopping cart. But yeah, it was kind of, um, I do remember that one specifically, <laughs> very clearly, as you can imagine, right? Yeah. And we'll have a link in the show notes for those of you driving home of my, um, my 2013 um, blog article called uh, My WWDC Sob Story, if you wanted to blast oh, it really? past oh. as to how, <laughs> how miserable the selection process used to be. Well, and, the, and this is the thing, like Mark and I, you know, Mark and I were working together at that t- at that point in time. I remember the year before, 2012, you know, I have a sort of a habit. I don't tend to check my email before I go br- have my breakfast in the morning. It's sort of a contract I have with my wife about, you know, life, life work balance kind of thing, right? And it just so happened, I was looking at my phone, um, my iPhone, I guess at the time, and uh, on 20, 2012, and I saw it was like, quarter to eight or eight thirty or something like that and tickets w- went on sale and so i you know sat down on my mac and you know punched in the thing and, and bought the ticket right then and there and then i remember calling or contacting mark or sent him an email and for you know eight o'clock in the morning for me is like five o'clock in the morning for for mark and mark was still asleep and yeah i think by the time you got up they were sold out right yeah mark? exactly yeah, yeah yeah so by the time you know and, and it was kind of that was the year that's when they that was the year before they went to lottery right um no i used to know they went to lottery in 2014 because of these these two he- these two hiccups right because it was like you know people in Europe and people in eastern Can- eastern United States and Canada could go to WWDC but the people on the west coast had no chance right sob stories all around mine were win mines were wins so I, you know my sob stories now that I can't seem to get a ticket for love no money <laughs> at all right well hi oh. I've had the same issue for a long time well it, sh- it should be your year next year Mark because Jaime went 2015 Greg went 2016 right yeah Tammy's not going to apply so it's it's got to be your number next year so okay and it's in San Jose so <laughs> well, it was in San Jose this year, and I didn't get a ticket. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of it's a weird thing, right? So, yeah. but you, I can tell you though, it used to be it used to be pretty much the same people. You know, when I started going in 2010, and you know, met a, met a bunch of people, they would be back in 2011 and 2012. And the thing about it is, is that ever since they went to the lottery system, it's like usually 60 percent of the people have never actually been to the WWDC before. So as much as I, you know, grumble about not getting a ticket, and I think that it, it is a pretty fair process, right? So, and it actually is a lottery, like you know, uh, take your tinfoil hat off, for, and and you know, you'll see that that it's not <laughs> some sort of conspiracy, right? So. Yeah, yeah, it's just random. And, you know, the pool of people applying, I'm sure, gets bigger every single year. So 
So it, it gets less and less likely that you'll get picked every year. Right, right. Well, it's, it's yeah, as the numbers increase, yeah. Well, mind you, though, um, I think they still have the same number of tickets in San Jose, but uh, I wonder if they can accommodate more people because, I mean, that was the thing about Moscone West. It was never really big enough to ha- to handle that many people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and isn't the San Jose... San Jose is closer, better for Apple, right? Um, yeah. Sure. And actually, isn't... Um, well, I was going to say, isn't the uh, spaceship... Um, it's relatively close to where you are, right? So who it, knows if they might move move events over there. Yeah, I have no idea if they've got something that big inside. I, I, have no, I don't know. Well, we're going to see on the 12th because the, annou- the iPhone announcement is going to take place at the new Steve Jobs Theater, right? Right, but that's um, not... But that's not actually inside the spaceship ring. That's kind no, of no. It's outside um, of it. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But it's on the same property, though, right? Yes, for sure. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So. Hmm. I, I suspect that that's more of a you know kind of thing like uh, where they've done the, the press announcements in the past, like over at uh, they used to do it over at, at uh, yeah, building the, number four, the, yeah. the college or yeah, or on campus. So it's just it's just an auditorium. It, it wouldn't be big enough to have the entire WBC. No, no, no. I'm not saying that. I'm yeah, because that's obviously the, you have to have a convention hall. But I'm just yep. I mean, you were telling me at the time when we were in San Jose last last February that uh, the convention center is quite big, right? It is pretty big, yeah, yeah. No, so and then and you know last year they also had the Coco Conf and the um, the Alt Conf in the two buildings on the wings, right? Two so, hotels, adjacent hotels, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, so they're like uh, hotel conference rooms, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, hmm. yeah. They're independent nice. rooms. Let's see, hmm. all right. Well, uh, what were we talking about? Oh, yes. So that was talking about Apple getting hacked. Um, so yeah, I mean, you have a couple of things on your uh, you posted. Yeah, a couple of things related to Swift. They're pretty short, I think, for the most part. Uh, well, m- maybe the second one's not so short. The first one is short. It's called uh, Swift Tricks Searching for Object by Type by uh, Tim Ickle, a Seattle area developer who works at uh, the Omni Group. And it's essentially coming up with a, a nice nifty little way to sort of efficiently find the first subview of a view that has some sort of you know special property. Like, let's say in this case, it happens to be of a particular class. And he starts out, you know, first using, you know, um, get the subviews and then find the first where something is a special view and then use the uh, as exclamation point special view yeah and it's like well that's that's not so great especially with the the bang in there right the exclamation point um you can cause things to to not go so well um yeah. but as he kind of goes through very quickly here there's some iterations where you use a uh, flat map instead of map because that will give you um collapsed sort of uh greg is going to kill me on this one let's call it a collapsed collection of things for lack of a better term right like like an array let's say uh but without any of the nil elements that you might end up with with a map right where a map might say well this thing didn't meet the the needs but because i have to go through every element and account for every element in the in the resulting sort of output i'm going to have that in there and that's kind of undesirable for this particular case whereas flat map if you remove all the nil or things that did not meet the criteria that's kind of like the first step of where you want to get to and then using um, that, you can use uh, as question mark instead of as bang or exclamation point. Um, and that's a little bit nicer in general um, in terms of like, you know, not causing things to crash because like, well, this thing didn't, you know, this thing uh, optionally didn't bind the way we wanted it to. So let's ignore that one. Let's move on to the next one, the flat map. And apparently using the uh, dot lazy property from uh, on the subviews is an interesting way to not have to worry about um, having this huge number of views reference in as it goes through and loops through these things. Um, the lazy manipulation here will only call things as need be. So in this case, since he calls the dot first, you know, so he wants the flat map, but he also wants the first one that he finds. He doesn't want, you know, every single one of the subviews that happen to be a uh, special. He just kind of just wants the first one. Um, even if there were a ton of subviews, my understanding from reading this is that using lazy means that the evaluation doesn't happen all at once. It happens on an as needed basis kind of like a way you might have like lazy initialization of, of properties, for example. So it really boils down to like a really small sort of um, one-liner where it becomes, you know, return your view.subviews.lazy.flatmap, um, check that uh, the item is or as question mark special view, and then dot first for that, and you get the first one. And I tried this on um, a, a simple view hierarchy I had, and it seemed to find it. So that's, that's good for the first part. Um, I didn't try like setting up a complicated view hierarchy and then you know, have it go through without using the lazy and see how many things it might hold in the memory. That might be an interesting sort of follow 
follow-up thing to do. Right. And for That's those of you driving at home, just so Greg doesn't yell at us, the as with an exclamation point is called force downcast. You're, you're force downcasting the object to a special view. And you see that a lot when people are loading views from um, with uh, custom with like custom cells or whatever. Um, and the other one, I have a slide I'm look, just struggling to look for right now, but I've got the three as's divined on it because I always forget what they are. But you know, the as, as with an exclamation is force downcast. So that's why, you know, people don't like using the, any any kind of force in Swift, right? And the other one, like you said, it unwraps. It's like a, an as, but it unwraps. And if it doesn't, if it returns a nil, it just stops or fails or whatever gracefully. And the other as, I forget what that one is too. But Yeah, I, I in general don't like to use any kind of force, you know, with the bangs at all because it's it's very risky. But, but there is one case where you pretty much have to use it. And that's where if you're in a try mm-hmm. uh so so i like to use a case where i like to use the the as bang is is with a try question mark case where the thing that you're trying may or may not be of the type that you want but you only want it to return something if it is of the type you want so you can use try question mark then your your thing and then as bang in your type and if it can convert it to that type it will uh and then the try will prevent any kind of issues with the with the forcing to to crashing the app or anything like that, so it will just give you it'll either give you back uh, an object or a, or an optional. Uh, well, it'll give it, it'll give you back an, an optional value for the thing, and then if you use that inside an if let, uh, then you get the value if you want. It works just as just as you might expect. Right, right. So I found that the, the, I didn't find my slide, but I found another definition that as is is uh, upcasting or, you know, uh, can be used in pattern matching like you were just saying with the try there. But uh, yep. the as question mark is an optional cast operator. In other words, if it, it it tries to do the conversion, if it doesn't, it returns nil if it can't. And the as exclamation point for you, those of you driving at home is if what we call a force downcast. And um, you see it a lot like it, like, um, like I said, when you're, if you're customizing a cell on a table view or a collection view, you'll see that uh, people will you know, set the cell, you know, as, as bang. And then they'll say, you know, UI table view, my custom table view cell or whatever. Um, you see that a lot in code, but there are other ways to do it, but. The, the case I was the case I was just specifically thinking about is is say you're using core data on multiple threads uh, then of course you can't use core data objects between the threads. You have to use the object ID to uh, pull the version of that object on the right thread or queue. So you, you use something like context dot existing object with object ID, but that returns right. an NS managed object type. And if if you're actually trying to use this for a subclass of the, the NS managed object, so a custom managed object, uh, then because that thing takes a try as well, you can just say if let my object equals try question mark context dot existing object with object ID as bang and then your subclass type, right. and right. that will give you the 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 right uh, type object ID. Right. So we actually had a case today where we were, we had a merge conflict and, um, we have a, we are using a third party library for the small, small feature that is, um, uh, uses some JavaScript and some HTML and stuff like that to create a little web view in, uh, in this one particular part of our app. And because of the way we, we, we had to bring it, the merge conflict made that it was on the project file. So we lost it. We had to bring it back in again. We had to bring, import that stuff back in again. And I'm going to ask you a follow up question in a minute. But what happened was we were saying like, you know, use, you know, such and such NS URL request with URL as bang URL. Um, and it was crashing because the URL was coming back as nil. Uh, so in that case, we couldn't force cast it down to a URL type. Um, and we, so we were scratching our heads because it worked like yesterday, but it didn't work today. And then, so we have to find another more elegant way to test this thing to make sure it works properly, even when the URL returns nil. But it turned out that, so do you guys know the difference between yellow folders and blue folders in the project direct project view? What do you call that project view? Um, in Xcode? I never remember which is which, but one is representative of a physical folder, like actual folder on, let's say, your hard drive. And the other one is just a logical grouping. So the blue one is called a folder reference and the yellow yellow ones or gold ones are um, just like how you just organize your code. Because what happens when you actually uh, compile your app, it just takes everything, it doesn't, it ignores the yellow folders and puts everything into the bundle just at the root level and away it goes. But in, in our 
our case, because we had all these, um, uh, we had all this HTML and Java code, JavaScript code that had to navigate through their own little hierarchy in the module there. They needed to be folder references, not the gold group folders, because when we did that, it wasn't able to find the URL and, and build the URL dynamically by navigating through its own folder structure. So in that case, if you follow me, they needed to be the blue folders and not the gold folders, right? Mm. And if you look, when we look in the bundle, uh, and when I looked at the project, and I, I was showing it to one of our junior developers today, when we looked in the bundle, you could see that all of the, you know, the assets and all the classes and all this, you know, nibs and all that kind of stuff are sitting at the, at the root level inside the bundle. But that blue set of folders is still there with the folder hierarchy so that the JavaScript or whatever could navigate through that um, and build the URL that we needed. And that's why we're getting a nil URL. But so I learned today with the difference between blue and yellow folders, not so much just looking at them, but also actually using them in practice. So that's what I learned today. I could have sworn so, I had seen something about Xcode 9 changing the default behavior that when you really like create some files, you know, you, you want to add a file in, in, into a group that it will create that folder structure for you. Is that, is that on, correct? On the file? No, that's yeah, yeah, right. I think, I think it's a one-to-one mapping now between the file system and how you have them in the project. What's that thing called? Hang on. I just opened Xcode so I can see what it was. It's called Project Navigator. In the Project Navigator, um, what you, in, in Xcode 9 now, if you make a, a, a sub, subdirectory structure, it actually will, it can, I think it's an option, you can have it make that same structure on the file system as well. Which right now, you know, wherever you put the files in your in your project, they can be anywhere on your Mac drive as long as they're organized, you know, and and uh, you can find them when you go to do a build. Um, but I think but when, when they actually get put into a bundle, I don't think it, it I, I would guess it wouldn't, um, it'll just put them in the flat file system in the, inside the bundle, right? You know what I mean by that, right? When you when you get the actual um, API file built in your developer directory and you, you know, right-click on it, show package contents, and you see the contents there, right? Mm-hmm. Have you ever done that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but yeah, you're right. That is a new feature in uh, Xcode 9 that'll, it'll, it'll honor your folder structure. Because we, we, at uh, at the, the bank, we like to keep everything organized in, in the same folder structure on the file system as well, just for clarity, because there's so many of us working on projects, right? On the same project, for sanity's sake. All right. Is that all you had to say about that, Jaime? I mean, that was so short. <laughs> it was a rather short blog, so... <laughs> <laughs> Probably, All right, well, we probably we spent make, more time talking about it than people have spent reading it, I think. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I think we, we juiced out quite a bit of that one. That was, that was great. Well, we got people driving at home. We gave them instructions and things to see and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's your next uh, piece there? So as long as we're talking about uh, the term lazy, um, this is a blog post by Chris Adamson. You may know him as somebody who does a lot of core audio oh, yes. stuff. In fact, yep. he has a book. Yep. Um, he's called uh, A Perfectly Lazy Solution. So it comes across a couple things, right? So let's say you have a delegate, right? And as he mentions here, in the blog post, um, delegates usually tend to be optional because nothing bad happens if you don't have the delegate, just that extra behavior is never triggered. Okay, cool. There are, however, situations where the lack of a delegate just full on doesn't make sense. And he gives a couple of uh, examples like uh, URL sessions, CB central manager, and XCT waiter when you're doing unit testing, um, where just like the lack of a delegate just really doesn't make sense. It's like, well, why don't we even have this this thing here? So um, unfortunately, like in the case where, you know, this thing cannot exist without a delegate and you have to provide that thing at initialization time, what do you do if you want to use one of those things as a property, but also use self as the delegate, right? Sometimes Mm -hmm. that kind of makes sense as a convenience thing. Swift sort of like actively works against you in terms of doing this because it says, no, 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 you you can't do this. This makes no sense whatsoever because, you know, you're trying to set something before initialization is done, right? And he gives a a rather short example where it's like you have a, a, a delegator class that has two properties, you know, a string and um, a delegate, which will be the delegatee. And it tries to do, you know, okay, initialize myself with the delegatee that gets passed in and set, you know, self.delegate equals delegate. All right, fantastic. Um, However, if you try to do, okay, well, have your delegator equals you know, create a new delegator with the delegate of self. So if it'd be like, dude, there's no way you're trying to use self, like the self.delegate property that I mentioned in the initializer before self is initialized. And so it's interesting that we were just talking about the um, implicitly unwrapped optional, or as Chris Adamson mentions here, IUO, which I think should be IOU, sort of like, I will gladly pay you <laughs> Tuesday for a hamburger today. Uh, the wonderful exclamation or bang uh, mark, right? So, so you could get around this by changing 
challenging that um, that delegator thing to be um, an exclamation, a delegator with an exclamation at the end, right? And say, okay, look, compiler, I know what I'm doing here. Uh, I'm going to be careful. I swear that I will not allow this thing to be used before it gets initialized. Okay, and that'll let you go through, right? And say, okay, cool. So my delegator equals, um, uh, you know, create a new instance of a delegator with the delegate itself. And as he does the testing, it's like, I right, create my class. And then you can do like, you know, you know my test class dot delegator dot some, you know, property in this case, the string and access thing. That's fantastic. But he mentions like, okay, well, you're just kind of setting up a time bomb there, right? So if somebody else creates, or even you create another initialization um, as a, com- or another init method as a convenience, and then you completely forget to initialize that delegator property, then things will gladly blow up on you when you try to go access that thing, right? It'd be like, oh, sorry, we have something we haven't fulfilled here, right? So he proposes using a lazy property to change the signature to be, you know, create a lazy var delegator of type delegator where you instantiate a new delegator with the delegate of self. And so in the final solution here, that lazy var also uses the like equals to some sort of closure property that, that gets used. So when you think about it, that lazy var is going to be used only if and only when um, that thing actually needs to be used. So it's not quite the same as the implicitly unwrapped optional where you're promising that it will be there because the setup will in fact get called, but only when somebody actually tries to initialize or use that property. And the only way they can use that property is after the fact when that particular class has been instantiated. So using self becomes accessible and usable perfectly fine. Does that make sense? It might be hard to, to follow along sort of um, auditorially. Yeah, I've seen the code, yeah. yeah. But it really yeah, makes sense if you read the, yeah. the blog post. It, it, it definitely makes sense. When, when would you actually need to use something like this. It looks like it's it's only it only happens when you have to define the delegator or declare the delegator inside your init method, and you want to use self as the delegate of your delegator, right? So, d- would that happen very often? I mean, why you know why couldn't you just create your delegators somewhere else after your self is emitted? When what would be a case where you'd have to do it this way? So. I don't know if it's the exact same setup, but um, I remember creating this thing where it was like a refresh delegate um, that if it didn't have anybody to notify of changes to um, data, then it just didn't have a reason to exist, which I think is kind of similar to the examples he brings up of the uh, URL session CB, which I think is core Bluetooth central manager, where it just wouldn't make sense to instantiate this property or sorry, instantiate this class without having some something that it can talk to. And I can't remember how I got around that particular problem. I don't remember using this lazy var sort of thing, but it actually would have helped in that case where it was trying to orchestrate a little bit of things that were happening sort of elsewhere and then let interested parties know that, hey, by the way, this thing has been refreshed. Um, So I I don't think it's going to be the sort of tool like, oh, wow, I'm going to use this every day sort of thing. But um, if you do have a situation where it just doesn't make sense to have a completely different sort of class hierarchy or class setup, um, at least there is a way to get around this rather than sort of bashing your head on the keyboard and wondering why Swift is so strict about this stuff, which yeah. it is for good reason, right? To prevent you from, from doing bad things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a cool little trick. Mm-hmm. All right, so it's time for the picks, picks of the crops. Pick-a-rama. Okay, so how many do you have a pick? I do have one. It's from Facebook's design blog, and it's called SoundKit for Prototypes, a collection of interaction sounds for prototypes. So it's not super fancy. You just go there and you download basically a zip file of, I don't know, maybe like 20-ish sounds, maybe, maybe a little bit more. Maybe it was more like 30-ish sounds. The kind of things that you can use for mocking up sort of what the sound interaction design is going to feel like for your prototypes, right? So where you might want to have um, buttons and navigation sounds, uh, error sounds, or notifications, alerts, or maybe completion and success sort of things of tasks. And so it's kind of nice that seems to be useful for um, just prototyping because it's not, um, as far as I remember, it's not licensed for redistribution. Uh, I guess you can ask them for that sort of thing. But I mean, if you're going as far as to add sort of nifty custom sounds, you might as well, you know, either go make your own custom ones if you have the ability to do that, or uh, maybe license them or, or contract somebody to do that. 
that in this case, I think it really is just for prototyping where you would get little clicks and pops and other sort of sounds that might very well make the difference for whatever your particular app is going to be. The interesting here that they come in full volume and low volume uh, iterations where the full volume ones are used when playing back on your computers. Um, and I guess it's like intended for sort of noising environments like, you know, hey, let me show my coworker here in my, my open workspace sort of thing and let me make sure they can actually hear it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but if you room, want yeah. to, yeah, but if you want to have it on a mobile device and like not annoy the crap out of people, you want the low volume um, ones that'll be a little bit more representative of how it'll actually sound on a mobile device. So like for present presentations or mock-ups and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm assuming these could just be, I don't remember what kind of file type these are, but I'm assuming these could just be used like in keynote prototypes, if, if you've ever right. done that before. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or Acrobat or whatever, yeah. Sure, sure. Or if cool. you're building an app and just need to throw something in and you know you're going to get the real thing later, just drop it. Right, yeah. Right. Hmm. All right. So my pick is uh, one of the things that uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but when you go to conferences, they usually have uh, evaluation forms and they kind of help the speakers know whether people were interested in their talk or things that they liked or didn't like about them. And one of the things I like about 360i Dev is, and a lot of these places is, you know, they, usually you fill in your your card, you put your name on it, and they put your name into a hat and they pull your name out and uh, you win a prize. Well, this year I won uh, the Big, Big Nerd Ranch book, iOS programming six edition, which actually I've been looking for in the stores because I like, I've basically read every version of this particular book uh, because as I mentioned before, I teach iOS and I like to use this book as a source for source material. Um, and this is actually the first version of this book that I read cover to cover. So I was off last week and basically went through it, probably took about, about four days to sort of whip through the book. Um, but what's what's really interesting about the book is, first of all, it's written for Xcode 8. So it's written in Swift, with Swift 3 support. So it's relatively up to date in terms of uh, where what where it, where code is. It was it was published in December, um, and so if you're you know looking if you're somebody just starting out in, in iOS and you just want to learn some stuff and, and get a good grounding on it, it's a pretty good book. But if you're an intermediate or senior de- developer who doesn't have time to dig into all the sort of nuances of iOS development, this is a good survey of everything that's involved. I mean, because it touched on a whole lot of different things. You know, it started off with a simple, um, almost like n- not quite a hello world app but a little bit more advanced than that and one of the things about the big nerd ranch books is they never sort of start with the templates um in building the app app examples they always start with this you know uh, well they start with the the single view application but you build things out like if you're going to put a table view together they don't just have you grab a table view controller from interface builder they show you how to put together a table view and connect all the delegate and data source and um how to write how to probably subclass your files and go through the whole thing and you know they touch on extensions they touch on uh, collection views. They do a lot of auto layout in this particular book, and a lot of really handy tips for auto layout that you may not have may not have had time to sort of brush up on. But as you go through the book, um, you sort of pick up little trick tips and tricks. You know, like I said, I kind of breezed through it because I already knew some of the theory. But there were some interesting things that parts that I kind of stopped and wanted to you know, read about. Like they took the time to sort of explain what's in an HTML request when you're talking to a server, what the what the parts of the the actual request and what the response are. So like you know, sort of a little side note. You can take a look at that. But yeah, I just uh, finished off the last chapters on accessibility and, you know, they take a project through three or four different chapters um, on core data, uh, which by the way is really buggy in Xcode data, I have to say. But um, yeah, so there, there's, uh, you know, you work through a uh, core data exercise, but it's not like, again, it's not like the, the templated one. You actually start with an empty project, you build a collection view on it, and then you attach core data to it. So you get a better grounding in, in the, the pieces that go into making up the, the parts that you're building uh, in apps. Um, it's not going to make you a professional developer by the time you're finished uh, finished doing it, but it, it's a good enough survey of the various kind of things. There's enough Swift in it, enough Swift theory, enough you know idiomatic Swift in there. Um, lots of good advice on how to use the tools. Lots of, like I said before, lots of tips and tricks on using auto layout sprinkled throughout the book. Um, it's worthwhile going through the exercises if you want to brush up on, you know, maybe you've been working in that other language, Objective-C, for a while and you haven't really do- had a chance to dive into into iOS development and Swift. This is sort of like there's, you know, there there is some, um, there's no bridging headers. There's nothing like that in there, but they do talk about things like core data, which is still a framework piece that has a lot of Objective-C in it. So they kind of explain how you go from one to the other. Um, they even touch on uh, enumerations with uh, associated types, which is kind of an interesting thing. You know, we talked about that on the show before, more more in the, in the sense of protocols, with associated types or paths. But it gives you, uh, you know, for me, it gave me enough of a foundation 
information that now, you know, the kind of light kind of went on. Oh, that's what they're talking about, you know, kind of thing. A lot of those little uh, aha moments as I was just breathing through the book. So I highly recommend the Big Nerd Wrench iOS programming, sixth edition. So there you go. Questions? So you mentioned <laughs> nope. that uh, core data in Xcode 8 is very buggy. Well, it's not so much that it's buggy. It, well, it's sort of, and this is sort of the swift approach to using it, which is kind of interesting. Um, you know, the, the Ray Wernerlich book takes a different approach to how you handle core data. They like to subclass the whole core data data source and, and delegate methods into a separate um, class as opposed to using the one that's templated into the into the master detail view example, for example. Um, yeah, they, they kind of walk you through and they explain, you know, you know how, um, you know, the, the, they, when you're building the model, that's where I actually had the, where I ran into the bug. There's a bug and uh, it seems to still be in 8.3, but um, when you create your, your model and then, you know, once you've got your model set up and you, you know, you select the model and you go under the edit, editor menu and you choose create the, the class, the, I forget what they call it, the managed object class, and it creates those two, there's two class files it creates for you in Swift, and um, it's like an auto-generated file, but there's something about, um, and it took me a while to figure out the bug, I had to go to, to online sources and finally cracked it, but you have to change it from an auto-gen type under the, the data model, when you're in the data, data model inspector, um, when you click on the uh, on the entity um, itself, like in this case I'm using a photo entity, um, there's a code gen um, menu item that by default puts uh, either class definition or class hyphen extension in there. I think class hyphen oh, extension. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. you have to switch that back to manual slash none to get rid of the bug. Or you get these all sort of, get like, you know, the name, like in the case here, it was it was called photo. And it kept telling me that uh, either photo was being used, it hadn't been initialized properly. And when I looked at the, actually, what, what where I saw this the problem was when I was going to do, when I commit the file, it kind of put a period in front of the name photo. So it was, it was trying to do period photo as opposed to just photo. And that was complaining that, you know, the photo, you know, a dog is not a dog or something like that. Let me just see if I got it in my browser history here. Yeah, that was kind so, of a weird bug. Right? Yeah, so so I haven't seen that bug, but I'm using the new feature where you don't have to generate those files at all. It just it auto-generates them and they're hidden files. That, that's and in 9 or, or in eight? 8? In 8, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. yeah, that came along with the persistent containers and all that. So, yeah, you just basically, you just set up your models in the in the model editor in the dot mom file uh, and do nothing else <laughs> and then it just works so you don't expect right. you don't export those files and so I, I suspect what's happening is by default it's you have it set to do that to do the hidden files and then when you create new ones you've got two versions of the file because you've got your own yeah that's kind of sort of what the error was saying so where where do yeah. you where, where do you see that uh, setting in Xcode I've got the project yeah. open you, you set nothing you just do nothing and it just happens automatically oh Wait, so you mean you just create your model and then how does it create the core data properties file and the core data class file? It, it does it automatically. It creates a hidden file automatically that you never see. It doesn't show up in your project anywhere, but it exists. So, right. so generally, so, so I use those for the, the basic definition of the, of the, the property, models, yeah, the, object. the objects. Yeah. And then yeah. I just create extensions on top of those to do whatever I need to do with them. And it just kind of works. Yeah, because the code generator here creates an extension called photo, and then it puts like the date taken, photo ID, name, and all that kind of stuff. And then it creates a, when it also have a relationship. So part, the first part of the exercise is you create a photo type, uh, photo entity, and then you add, create a tag entity so you can add tags to the photos as part okay. of the exercise. So so that one creates an extension that where the relationship is mapped out, you know, the, the to too many yep. relationships, um, but you're saying this. This well, it seems it could be like I said. They wrote this back in December, so or they were probably writing this in November of last year. So maybe that feature wasn't available at the time. Uh, I, don't I know, know. you've mentioned it before. Yeah, yeah. no, I, they talked about it at WWDC. So it, it's been sure, around last year. It, it's yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's been around. Um, you know, they may have just been converting from the old way of doing it, where you did have to explicitly yeah. export them, and right. maybe that's a more intuitive way for beginners because you actually see Maybe. the files it's very see, possible. yeah 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 it could be it could be yeah yeah because in this case you you never see the model you mo- the model definition in a file anyway which yeah, is a little, bit weird. Works. a little yeah. bit weird yeah i works. could see that being weird yeah i remember when yeah. i was trying to learn core data initially i mean other than the fact that like you know i've i've done a lot of apps you know in in web de- in web development and other other developments you know filemaker and mysql and stuff like that where um you have to write the create and the you know the delete and the update and the you know the read and all that kind of those methods. And what I liked about Core Data from the get-go, I mean, I initially got into Core Data because I was trying to write a Mac, an app that I was on iOS 
iOS and on on Mac OS, right? And that was back in the I think Leopard days when 10.5 was that Tiger? I guess Tiger when they introduced Core Data to iOS, right? Um, and it was just like it was it was magic because you basically created the model and it, all these sort of you know the all the saving and all that kind of stuff that I just described automatically came with, right? Um, which is why I like Core Data, right? But uh, yep. But it, it, I think a lot of people scratch their heads, which is why they go looking for other other ways of dealing with core data, right? Or, or this type of data like Realm and other technologies, right, that have been out there for a while. Because right? it is it is a bit of a black box. <laughs> Where there are pretty big issues, actually, in, in the new, the latest core data, X.8, uh, Swift 3, and I guess just iOS 10, uh, is with the threading. Uh, yeah, right, yeah. There's, there's a method on persistent... Uh, container that hold on just look up the exact name of the method yeah there's a method on persistent container and a persistent container called perform background task which takes a context and lets you do stuff on on a background queue uh a private queue so it creates a context with private queue concurrency and lets you do stuff inside this this closure on that on that queue but it's very deceiving because it doesn't behave the same way as creating a background context directly with private queue concurrency concurrency and then mm-hmm, calling mm-hmm. perform block right. so so and what it doesn't what it doesn't do specifically is it, it doesn't queue it at all so if you have multiple background tasks being called from this perform background task running at the same time they will conflict and as soon as you try to save your context you'll get your apple crash right, it's right. it's a it's a pretty big hole and i'm sort of surprised that actually apple even released it like this mm. uh, because it, it just flat out doesn't work and it implies in the documentation that it, it ought to, that it should work. Uh, in fact, I, I, as I recall, at one point it explicitly says that you can do that, uh, but you can't. Uh, so essentially, the way I've gotten around it is I create my own serial queue uh, and and uh, only run my background tasks on that queue. Right, so right. it's it's a little bit more of a pain. It's not that much of a pain, but but it's a little bit of a pain to set up. But it works and, and it cleans everything up. So yeah, so I don't know what perform background task is for. As far as I can tell, it's pretty useless. If, if anyone's found a good use for it that doesn't crash, uh, let me know. <laughs> right, right. Well, I was going to say too, for those we don't want to scare people away from this book, because um, Mark and I are talking about some pretty deep stuff. But um, yeah. one thing they do ta- they do tap into is concurrency here. They do a, lo- a couple of because um, they're they're pulling information from uh, Flickr is the is the site they, they use uh, Flickr API. Um, but but they use some background threading uh, to to improve the speed of you know downloading, not waiting for you know you. Don't want to fill, you don't want to wait for the fetch to finish to before you start updating your your collection view cell. So they we throw that on a background thread. Right. Um, but there is also some core data saving that happens in the background thread. I'm just trying to find it right now. Oh, actually, yeah. I, I guess if you're using it for for a long fetch, this perform background task would work as long as you're just reading context. You're yeah, reading from yeah. the context and and yeah, and then uh, you know populating your data source and then dispatching back to the main thread. I guess that would work. Yeah. Oh, actually, uh, no. You're using background task here, Mark, because uh, they they. Taking a persistent container dot perform background task, yeah, and then context in the closure, and then in, and then they're putting the the Flickr API call, you know, for, to parse the stuff from from uh, the JSON feed, right? Um, you know, they're letting the result equal that, and they're doing a do try. The try is context save, context context save, and then yeah. otherwise, you know, there's an error with core data, blah blah blah, right? So well, they are. This is this is where they're using the background thread. Yeah, here, but that's very da- that's extremely dangerous. I'm kind of surprised they put it in there. Uh, it. It will work. I suppose it'll work if if you're doing something like what they're doing, where you're yeah, waiting for the call, return yeah. of an API call and and you don't have any other core data stuff going on at the same time. Right, then, right. Then no, no, they pull it sure to the work. foreground thread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They pull it yeah. to the foreground thread when it's done, right? So yeah, because because that's you know they when they go to fetch the image, they pull it back onto the main thread and and they do the compression right, there. right, yeah. right. Oh, so are they actually saving on the background thread? Uh, yeah, because what they're doing yep. here is yes, they're they're um they're using you know, using a property on the persistent container to perform the background task to get the yep. result of the Flickr API, yep. Um, yep. reading from JSON, okay. and then putting it into context. Yeah. And then, well, I'll tell then, you. Then a, then a do try context save. So I guess if that that do try do try catch probably uh, block there probably saves their bacon if the, if something was to go wrong, right? 
Yeah, but it'll never save the updates if that happens. So I'll tell you, I tried exactly that because it's yeah. very similar to the way I used to do coordinate in the old way uh, with just uh, creating my own context and, and giving them private queue concurrency and, and adding the, you know, the, the main thread as the main queue as a master or, you know, main context as a, as, as a uh, sorry, parent and, and this is a child. Uh, that's the way I used to do it all. So I tried doing it this way because it seems like it's very similar. And the issue I was running into was my, I was having my, my updates were not coming from from a, a web API, they were coming much faster. So, right. so the background thread was still running when the next one started. Right. Uh, and so I had ended up having more than one background task running in parallel. And as soon as I tried to save, it would, it would crash. So, right, right. so it, I guess as long as you're very careful that you only ever have one background task running at the same time, then you're okay. But if you ever have a case where your objects are being updated on on multiple threads at the same time, then you're going to run into uh, merge content. Merge conflicts when you try to save that content. Right, right. So, so what they're doing here is they're just before this, um, they send it to the background task. There's a guard statement here that's basically blocking, um, you know, checking to see if the if the download is working before you before you throw it in there. Yeah, yeah, but 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 that's that's kind of not what I'm talking about. Let's let's just say. No, I know, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Say for the sake of argument, you had two different API calls that were both going to update objects, and you run them at the same time. Let's just say, uh, and so they they complete at sort of the same time, and they both kick off their perform background task and are updating objects in the same persistent store, uh, but now they're doing it on two different background contexts. Right. Then, when you try to save that, you potentially are going to have merge. Right, and yeah, it'll, yeah and that it'll makes crash sense. Your save. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. So, so be careful with multi-threading. Unfortunately, well, that's that's been true forever. <laughs> that's <laughs> but, true. No, yeah, we but know now that. There's, right. yeah. But now there's new reasons you have to be careful. Yeah. Well, they anyway. saved this for chapter yeah. twenty-three, so maybe they figured people wouldn't get this far if they're going to bail, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like the la- It's like one of the last things in the book that they they just and then you go through yeah. pretty quickly. But they do like you know initially when when um, I think when they're when they're first doing the API call and pulling down the you know because they're pulling down like ninety-eight images or whatever from from Flickr. And then they're sticking them into cord into collection view cells. This is way way before we even add core data into the app. Yep. Um, they're only doing that for 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 persistence that so that you know. And they're checking it like because you you say it, you're storing them locally or storing a reference to them locally so that when uh, next time you make the call it's faster because you don't have to go and get all the all the images again if you already have that particular image for instance, right? But yep. so before they add the core data, you get the images and you're waiting for each one of them for the NSU the URL request for each image to get pulled down. So they. Throw it onto a background thread so that the so that they can just come in as they as they arrive because you know the nature of web traffic is it's it's asynchronous right so you're going to get some images will ri- arrive at different times than others right so sure. when you first run the app you see them all sort of filling out the co- the collection view in slightly different orders right sure yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, don't get me wrong. The, the the using the background thread to handle the uh, the asynchronous nature of the API call is is hundred percent perfectly legitimate. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's it's just the way you set up the background threads to work with core data. You have to be a little bit careful. And yeah, I mean, the yeah, way they're yeah, doing yeah. it is a little bit, little bit, a uh, little bit risky. Yeah, well, I suppose, but I mean, there's more to it than that. They also are checking to see if the if the actual image already exists in the data store and blah blah blah. You know, because they're using the unique unique each photo on Flickr has a unique ID, and they're using that to sort of identify which images you already have and which ones you need. You know, you need to go fetch and whatever, right? So yeah, all that's completely 100 percent legit. Yeah, it's it's all about just the way you set up the background view. So <laughs> gotcha. So, yeah, yeah. But let's yeah. not scare people away from buying the book. <laughs> Well, okay. Not that we get anything out of the book. It's just a good book, like I said, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Just Mark yeah. has a problem with one section of the book. <laughs> Very small section. Well, you know, I, I actually didn't mean this to be about the book. I meant it to be more about Gordon. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I, I get that, yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, like I was surprised. Like I said, my experience with Core Data has always been it just works, right? Because um, even, like I said, they, they go through predicates and how they work and that kind of stuff. So you can actually, you know, when you start adding tags to the images, you can have, you know, the, the, the you can have one image can have, multiple tags and it can share tags with others and, and not share tags with others, that kind of thing, right? So, um, and, and using the relationship in core data to sort of set that up and, you know, and save those those tags and those relationships, it's, you know, just, it's pretty simple to do that, right? Yeah. Um, oh, I mean, you, you know me, I, I'm a huge fan of core data. Oh, yeah, me too. Uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah. but using it with multiple threads is, is, there's lots and lots and lots of glitches. Yeah, I guess for the folks driving at home, you got to remember too that, you know, we would rather use Xcode warts and all 
than Android Studio or Eclipse or <laughs> any other code environment or SDK, right? Or SD, SDE, what is it called? What do you call these things? IDE, right? Like we, we, we bitch about Xcode, but still it's, it's one of the better IDEs out there. And we, we in this case, we're bitching about core data, but you know, 99% of the time it just works, right? When we try and do the, the tricky heavy lifting that things get uh, screwy, right? Yep. Alrighty. So are we there yet? I think so. Sure. All right, so I guess that's it for another week. And so, honey, if people want to find you on YouTube, where would they look? I'm on Twitter as at Dev with a hair. All right, and Mark, if people want to get in touch with you, Mark R at Smapsoft.com or at Smapsoft. All right, and as usual, I am Timitra, T I M M I T R A on Twitter, and that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. If you want to find out more about the podcast or see the episode show notes, visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. You can get in touch with us on the website or follow us on Twitter at mtjc underscore podcast. If you have feedback or questions, send us a tweet with the hashtag AskMTJC. If you like the show, please consider recommending us to a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or pledging any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. You can find out the details on how to help us out on our website at mtjc.fm slash sponsor us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. And we're also joined by Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. That would be San Jose. I know, but I'm I'm trying to peg a different <laughs> thing here. Oh. <laughs> anyway, that's a reference to our pal um, Walter Becker, who passed away this weekend. Uh, get what's I don't get the reference though. What you're gonna have to explain oh, that one to me. Josie, yeah. Josie, Peg, Josie, Black Cow, Asia, Gaucho, reeling in the years. He, he, Josie went. He said Josie is a, a song by by Steely Dan. Oh, oh, but it has nothing to do with San Jose. No, but it's like San Josie. Okay, that was pretty. I'm scared there, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, this, this won't survive the show. All right. So, oh, ask MTJC. Do we have any ask? Do you, do you want to say, do you want to introduce me again? Because you're not going to use that last one. Oh, all right. Okay. And we're also joined by Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. Yeah. It sounded better in my head than it did. <laughs> Maybe we'll put it in the after show or something. Yeah. Um, so, where's Twitter? There it is. Let's see. Do we get any Ask MTG responses? I know we got some likes, but have we looked, Tommy? I didn't see anything. I, I posted something today that was just um, telling people that they should practice their Wolverine war roar oh, in nice. case of tigers. Yeah. Um, right, so, right. I threw the hashtag AskMTJC on there, but it wasn't anyone else asking us anything. Yeah, no, I thought I got something nice from uh, Jesse. Hmm. All right. Okay, we'll dive in then. Yeah, I mean, don't forget too, they're not, they're not telling you to ship this app to the App Store after you're done. And, and they do actually say in the conclusion of the book, which I think is, is good of them to say, you are not a, you know, you're not an iOS developer having read this book. You are, right, you're, you're on, right. you're on the path and you've, you've seen, you've seen the sort of, uh, things you come up against. I, Cause I remember, you know, I, like I said, I read this book. I'm just, I was trying to think. So I've had the first version, I think. Because I read it back when I was first learning uh, Objective C, right? And um, I used the fifth edition when I was teaching, and I ha- and I have the I think I pretty much have the first four editions upstairs, right? Because um, I think there's only one version of the book that I never bought, and I was waiting for this book because uh, because it covers Swift three, and um, you know, and and I was having trouble getting my hands on one, but I won one at three sixty, which was was great, right? Um, yeah, so you get to go and pick your prize, and yeah, as soon as I saw it, I've been looking in the bookstores waiting for this book to come out, and I kept looking at Amazon thinking, ah, one of these days I'll just buy it and be done with it, right? But yeah, you know, get it to free, get it for free, and and then I had the time to go through it, right? So, because sure. I still, you know, I still want to go. I still have some refactoring to do on on device tracker, for instance, and and uh, it's kind of convoluted the way we kind of went with it, you know, because we started it back when uh, Cordita was new, you know, uh, on iOS anyway, and so there was some weird ideas we had about how we were setting it up, and uh, so I just wanted to, you know, have a refresher on on this stuff, and plus, you know, I, I tend to write new stuff in. Swift anyway, even in my Objective C files or projects. So yeah, it's all good. So not to worry. But yeah, like I said, it's it's 
always been a pretty good book. And, and I like, at first I didn't like the fact, like they were initially, they didn't do anything with, with nibs, right. Or with, yeah, they, they did everything on, you know, command, command driven code, right. Or views. And then they started using when this, you know, uh, storyboard started coming out, they started dabbling into that a little bit more. And, um, I like this book. They do the first, I think maybe one chapter uses, pl- uh, playgrounds. The rest of it's all using Xcode with iOS. So yeah, it's good. And it's, and it's never, like I said, it's never just use, using boilerplate stuff or, or download this somewhat completed app and then just do this last part. It's like everything you start from scratch and you work your way through it. And uh, I think it's a good way to learn for people to learn to use the book or use the, use the, get through the material, right? So. Mark, are you going to be able to see the uh, the game tomorrow? I sure hope so. All right. Are you going to watch uh, for the Apple Watches? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be mad if I miss that game. For this are you back? You down to playoffs or or gang? Oh no, it's o- opening game, opening day, first game of oh, the playoffs. Yeah, no, of oh. the football, the football season. This is the NFL season. Oh, Sorry, Tim. I should, I should have stated that from, from the beginning because we were Sports talking about the Red Sox ball. earlier. So yeah, 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 yeah. There. Yeah, I knew exactly what you were talking about, Javi. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I heard. I heard. Um, uh, what is his name? Um, oh, I can't think of his name right now. But he was. He was. He was sort of saying on on uh, one of his TV shows that he's not a. He's not a sports guy. He's like, yeah, throw the ball, catch, po- catch the ball, points, yay! And that's sort of how he summed up sports. <laughs> <laughs> points, yay! <laughs> yeah. 